Let me begin this episode by sharing some updates I've received since our last episode. The New Hampshire State Police have responded to my original right-to-know request concerning the type of service weapon the department was issued in 1997. On December 5th, 2018, I received an email from their counsel stating, quote, additional anecdotal information suggests that New Hampshire State Police used the Smith & Wesson 45 caliber model 4506 and 4566 in 1997, and that prior to that, in the 1995 to 1996 range, New Hampshire State Police had used the Smith & Wesson 9mm model 5906 and 6906, end quote. So I think it's safe to assume that the department transitioned from their 38 caliber revolvers to 9mm Smith & Wessons sometime before 1995, and then upgraded to 45 caliber Smith & Wessons in either 1996 or 1997, which seems legit. Honing in on our target of the three police agencies that have jurisdiction in the Manchester, New Hampshire area, the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office had been issued 9mm Smith & Wesson firearms. The New Hampshire State Police had either employed 9mm or 45 caliber Smith & Wessons, and only the Manchester Police Department had been issued 40 caliber service weapons at the time Richard Adderson was shot and killed in 1997. Now, I mentioned Manchester, New Hampshire, because if you refer back to our first episode, during their original investigation, the New York State Police had announced that information had been developed to lead investigators to believe that the gunman had ties to the Manchester, New Hampshire area. We still have to wait another two months before we receive any response from the New York State Police as to what caliber firearm that department employed in 1997. Let me just add, I'm not discounting that the suspect could have purchased an off-duty 40 caliber handgun. In fact, in my experience, many cops possess off-duty weapons that are of a different caliber than their service weapons. However, many cops also carry their service weapon while off-duty. And it's important to know what weapon system each department had employed at the time of the crime. I also received some encouraging news again from the New Hampshire State Police. Quote, we have identified nine pages of available records that are responsive to your request for records pertaining to the New Hampshire State Police assistance to New York State Police on the Adderson homicide. Information compiled for law enforcement purposes is being withheld that, if released, would reasonably be anticipated to interfere in law enforcement proceedings. Within that material is also material that would constitute an unwarranted invasion of personal privacy. Then there's blah, 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 blah. Upon my receipt of your check in the amount of $9 made payable to Treasurer, State of New Hampshire, I will forward the records to you, end quote. 
I should receive those records by our next episode, and I will surely begin that show with hopefully some exciting new information. I've been critical of the New Hampshire State Police for not responding to my requests in a timely manner and for providing overbroad and rather ambiguous information when they have replied. I'll keep my fingers crossed that this new information will allow us to begin to corroborate some valuable information I've learned, like the story of a mysterious secretary who may hold the key in solving the Adderson homicide once and for all. From the outskirts of New York City, Slim Turkey is pseudonymously hosted by Lee Purchase, with the occasional cluck from the Yonkers love chicken himself, Mr. Slim Turkey. On April 6th, 1998, 14 months after Richard Adderson had been shot and killed by an unknown assailant on the side of I-84 in Fishkill, New York, Matthew Renneman, the senior New York State Police investigator on the case, held a press conference in Concord, New Hampshire, to drop the bombshell that the killer had identified himself as a cop. And it's a safe bet he was a New Hampshire cop because Renneman also acknowledged during that New Hampshire press conference, both New York and New Hampshire State Police had focused their investigation on current and former officers in their search for Adderson's killer. The following day, Renneman and his counterpart, Lieutenant David Eastman, head of the New Hampshire State Police's major crime unit, were back in front of the media, again in New Hampshire, announcing that the previous day's revelation the suspect had identified himself as a cop had generated several additional leads in the investigation. It appeared to be great police work, no doubt. And yet Renneman and other New York State police investigators had seemingly forgotten to include the New York media in the ongoing developments of this case. In fact, when I first interviewed Dave Adderson, Richard's son, earlier this year, he wasn't aware that the New York State Police had ever announced that his father's killer had identified himself as a cop. I had never, I haven't heard that the, you know, the guy identified himself as a police officer uh, to my father. That's never, I've never heard. You've never heard that? Uh, no, I don't know where where that rumor came from. My understanding was because it was a a, a common round that's used by police. Um, that's where I thought that came from. I've never, I don't know how long the entire 911 tape is. I've only heard that one segment of it. From the, from the show? From the show. It's something that I wanted to hear in its entirety for a long time. And that's coming from a devoted son who still Googles his father's name and regularly checks message boards for any potential new information or clues about Richard's case. I'm reminded of this summer's meeting with the current lead investigator. As I mentioned before, the conversation began friendly enough when I was just a random guy with an idea for a podcast looking for some information about the Adderson case. But when the senior investigator walked in, the atmospheric pressure began to drop. For starters, she entered the room purposefully, although I wasn't much impressed with the spectacle of it all, probably because I've done that same shit myself. She also appeared to have the haggard look 
of a detective with time on the job, as they say. And she had, in fact, been on the job when Richard was shot and killed. According to online records that I found, the senior investigator is 51 years old and presumably was a patrol officer at the time of the crime. She wouldn't have been privy to all the details of the investigation as it unfolded, but as she became more involved with the case herself, she would have formed a connection to the original investigators. As she disclosed at our meeting, hers is a tight-knit community, and the blue wall of silence is still incredibly powerful when those behind it remain steadfast in their silence. It's a very unique dynamic. Furthermore, Matthew Renneman is still employed by the New York State Police, and his title as Assistant Deputy Superintendent means he wields great power within that agency with much to lose. So the old guard is still on duty. And in my opinion, that didn't bode well for a fresh pair of eyes to really begin digging into this case. By the time I disclosed that I too was a law enforcement officer, the senior investigator admonished me for not disclosing that information to Dave Adderson prior to me interviewing him. She would also infer that she was regularly in touch with the family and that I needed to be more sensitive to their feelings and privacy. So Shortly after leaving the New York State Police's barracks empty-handed, I began reaching out to current and retired troopers, asking for their help. In late July, it seemed like I caught a break. I spoke with one retired investigator who told me that he would assist in any way he could. He genuinely seemed enthusiastic about the case, and we agreed to speak again by week's end. Unfortunately, he reached out to the current senior investigator who oversees the Adderson case. He left me this message stating he couldn't help me any longer. Um, I, I have a lot of stuff going on in my life right now, and uh, I'm going to have to step away from this thing. I know that you spoke with uh, down in Wappingers, and that's that's uh, the place you ought to be. Um, that's their case. Uh, they have a file on it. As a matter of fact, she was doing some research on it when I spoke to her on Friday. And uh, so she is trying to get information for you, as I understand it. Um, so she's your contact person uh, from here on in. I think that would be the right way to go. I wish you well. I wish you luck. Uh, take care of yourself. Bye. After listening to the voicemail, I immediately called him back two or three times, but he wouldn't take my calls. It was such a huge departure from what he had told me only the week before. It's a shame, but lesson learned. My biggest problem with the New York State Police stems from the fact that their investigation into the Adderson homicide has never been fully transparent. What's the opposite of transparent? Opaque, cloudy, blurred. That's the word I'm looking for, blurred. 
As I've alluded to before, there have been numerous inconsistencies that have caused me great concern. Let's begin with the composite drawings that police released of the suspect. I was recently sent an article entitled How Police Sketches Work, written by Kristen Conger, in which she explains even if Leonardo da Vinci were creating police sketches, accuracy issues would still crop up. The major roadblock to creating spitting images of suspects rests not in the forensic artist's hand, but the victim's or witness's memory retrieval processes. Our brains summon our recognition memory, which relies on cues, such as spotting someone on the street, in order to form the associations that allow us to put, for instance, names with faces. For that reason, we might all know what Brad Pitt looks like and easily identify him strolling down the street, but we'd have a much harder time describing his appearance from scratch. End quote. Congo gets the gist of it, and I do find her quote illustrative, even though she may not be an expert on witness memory. However, the findings of renowned American psychologist Dr. Elizabeth Loftus corroborates Conger's description. Dr. Loftus, who teaches at the University of California, Irvine, is one of the leading researchers in the field of eyewitness memory. Studies have consistently proven the fallibility of human memory and the malleability of our recollections. Dr. Loftus writes, quote, like physical evidence, memory trace evidence can be contaminated lost, destroyed, or otherwise made to produce results that can lead to an incorrect reconstruction of the event in question, end quote. Now, let's get back to New York. No, not that New York. We're going to Albany, the headquarters of the New York State Police. Anyway, I don't think Albany has a song. I stand corrected, regrettably. Now, the New York State Police themselves offered cautionary advice on the accuracy of the eyewitness sketches of Richard Adderson's murderer before releasing them to the public, and then released three different composite drawings, which would only serve to confuse the public in the hunt for the killer. And I'll post those sketches on our Instagram and Twitter accounts. The initial sketch was based on the eyewitness account of a passing motorist during dusk in February. The subsequent drawings were revised, adding details of Richard's own physical description of his killer. And while composite drawings do serve the purpose of building interest in a case, they actually serve to benefit suspects in difficult cases such as this one. Even the best composite drawings, such as that of the Oklahoma City bomber, Timothy McVeigh, are weak at best. Drawings by experts who are trained and experienced in dealing with eyewitness accounts produce a likeness that is considered to be about 10% accurate. So, it stands to reason, if the police were truly concerned about obtaining accurate tips and information from the public, 
they certainly, certainly wouldn't have released all three drawings. How many witnesses, neighbors, friends, or even family members did those sketches potentially distract or confuse? We'll never know, but I do believe that's exactly what the police wanted to do. We've been given very little information. I'd even call it superficial information about this case. Take, for example, when police released a portion of the 911 call to Unsolved Mysteries. Even Richard's description of his killer was limited to the line, he wore glasses. And really, that's all we know. What we don't know is what was said between Adderson and the dispatcher on the remaining eight minutes plus of the 911 call, which amounts to an eternity of omitted details. 21 years after Richard Adderson's homicide, the New York State Police maintained that releasing the balance of that tape would impede their investigation. At this point, the police can't really be worried about blurring the investigation by releasing the balance of that tape. They're simply withholding information for other reasons, which should become more obvious as we dive deeper into this case. Daylight is the best disinfectant. Another curious decision made by police involved withholding the fact that the suspect had identified himself as a cop. They would learn this early on in their investigation simply by listening to the 911 call, but that critical information was never divulged on America's Most Wanted or Unsolved Mysteries. Why would anyone intentionally withhold that rather valuable information from two nationally syndicated television shows that could have potentially reached millions of viewers. Do you smell it? That smell. The kind of smelly smell. The smelly smell that smells. Smelly. Something smells fishy, doesn't it? Think about the possibility of either one of those shows broadcasting that information on national TV. The murderer of Richard Adderson was possibly a cop. Let's pretend for a moment it's 1998 and I live in Manchester, New Hampshire. I just finished a hard day's work and can't wait to get home to watch my second favorite show, Unsolved Mysteries. Law and Order is my favorite. On this particular night, the show airs a segment about a New York State road rage incident. Interesting, but it has little to do with my world. Oh, wait. The killer was driving a late model Jeep Cherokee with New Hampshire license plates. Oh, that sketch looks nothing like. Wait. He ID'd himself as a cop? Oh, shit. Could that be Bob from next door? No way. 
He's a deputy chief or something like that. There's no fucking way. But then, over the course of the next week, I begin noticing little things about my next door neighbor, Bob. And I'm the nosy type, so I start snooping around. He seems a bit paranoid. I notice on garbage collection day, he's been drinking more than usual. And what's that? Why is he reading New York newspapers? Well, hopefully you get the point. The details all add up. That critically valuable information may have been better served being released to a wider audience than simply at a press conference to local news media in Concord, New Hampshire. So we have Slim Turkey in the studio. Turkey, how are you doing today? We, um, this is a continuation of last episode's examination of the police investigation. And I wanted to, um, really focus in on the potential of a police cover-up in this episode. So, Turkey, you have anything? Yes, I have a little. (laughs) So, do you know... If you go to cover-ups on Wikipedia, what a cover-up is. If you don't, here you go. I'll give you an answer. A cover-up is an attempt, whether successful or not, to conceal evidence of wrongdoing, error, incompetence, or other embarrassing information. In a passive cover-up, information is simply not provided. In an active cover-up, deception is used. So. Think about that. In an active investigation. Well, in an active cover-up. In an active cover-up, they will give you information that is supposed to mislead you. Remember what you discussed before in the last episode was that they will not purposely lend out details pertinent to an investigation because only the perpetrator would know the details of the crime. So they don't want that. They don't want everyone to know the details of the crime. Right. So in, in, in the case of uh, normal police investigations, specifically for major crimes, they withhold information. Pertinent, hope, yeah. Ho- hoping that eventually that information will come out in an interrogation where someone will divulge that information and then they'll say, we got our man. So, when I was looking up cover-up, it led me on a myriad of trails. But the main things I, I figured I would detail to the audience and, and this podcast was, let's, let's keep this broad. My examples are, my first example is smoking. Of yeah. a cover-up, where they said smoking, when it, when it was originally brought about it was known as a social norm you saw it on commercial ads you saw it in tv shows and it was just a normal thing smoking was not a bad thing then you you, so we're talking about the tobacco industry right now correct yes okay we're touching up on how it was a cover-up so tobacco industry cover-up yes so in the 1950s a physician and epidemiologist 
Oof. You're going to have to help me on this one. <laughs> so wait a second. This, I feel like you're such a big Russell Crowe fan. What was the movie Russell Crowe did? Oh, the big, uh, oh, I know that movie. That movie was good. Yeah, well, you're a big Russell Crowe fan. I'm not a big Russell Crowe fan. I'm a big, I'm a big good movie fan. Oh, uh, The Insider. The Insider. Yep. That was a good movie. And, and yeah. the other Russell Crowe movie was where he played... The Mind. Um, a Beautiful Mind. A Beautiful Mind. And Russell Crowe is good. Sometimes. He's not full of himself. Born in New Zealand in 64, a hot-headed actor named Russell Crowe. He loves to act, but he loves one thing more. Fight around the world. Anyway, but the first, my first example of a cover-up is with tobacco. In 1950, a physician and epidemiologist. Epidemiology? Epidemiologist. Say it again. (laughs) Epidemiology? Epidemiology? Yes. Dr. Ernest Widner published a landmark study in the Journal of the American Medical Association. AMA. Pointing to cigarette smoking as a cause of lung cancer. Source, Blakesby. Wait, in, what, what year was this? 1950. Wow. In response, six major cigarette makers funded a massive research effort, not so much to find out whether their product did indeed pose a risk, but to blow smoke in the public's face. So that's my first example of a cover-up. Big Tobacco knew tobacco was harmful and decided, guess what? It's not harmful. We're going to pay a bunch of doctors to just... To refute the claims of this one scientist doctor who had said that smoking causes cancer. There's a correlation between... Lung cancer and smoking. Correct. Well, I didn't know it was that early on. And then my second example is a little more secular. So and wait, so that is an example of a of a, a an actual up. active active cover up. Yeah, that's why you see the the ads now for the truth, which saying that tobacco is is harmful. Probably yeah. probably funded by tobacco. It has to be because yeah. of that the, the insider movie that said that they would now shed the light that tobacco is not health- dangerous yeah it's it's not healthy another example of a cover-up of a cover-up and it hits, it's close to home is on a more secular basis is catholicism i was raised christian an altar boy and of catholic upbringing for the first 14 years of my life so this one strikes close to home because it struck a pillar of my foundation. <laughs> no? No, that <laughs> I just think that's funny. It struck a pillar of my foundation. It did. Did it really? Yeah. It affected you. It affected you to find out that the Catholic Church was I hate to say it because I know that it's not the it's not the majority of priests, but there was a, a yeah. good percentage of priests. I mean, were... I was an altar boy. I didn't have that. I didn't have that experience. But all the people, not even altar boys or anything, I was deep in the Catholic Church. I I believed in it, and my parents pushed me into it. But 
I generally thought the church was the end all be all. Now I am completely removed from it, and I don't believe in the church at all. Uh, why didn't you become a priest? Because I like the. F- <laughs> Girls, if I, if I have to fucking, if I have to like, oh, I'm glad you added that. Girls of age, girls. By the way, <laughs> have to, have... wise words by Slim Turkey, Mister Slim Turkey. All right, so the Catholic Church, um, that whole revelation rocked you to your core. Yeah, tell me. So, in 1973, Massachusetts-based Roman Catholic priest James R. Porter sent a disturbing letter to Pope Paul VI. Porter admitted that he had been sexually abusing children for years and asked that he be relieved of his duties before he hurt anyone else. This is his words. I know in the past that he used to hide behind a Roman collar thinking that it would be a shield for me, he said. Wait, 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 wait. So this is Father Porter. Yeah. What pr- Do you know what prompted him to write this letter to the Pope? I think he, he was trying to remove himself from the situation of, of being a priest and in a situation where uh, he would be in a position to put kids or... I, I, don't, I don't... The position was that he was trying to out himself so he was telling them, he was telling his superiors, I'm a bad person. Get me out of here. He was telling the yeah. Pope. Yeah. He was telling, he told yeah. the Pope. Exactly. That's But Porter's personal file obtained in 1992 by the Boston Globe revealed that Porter had considerable help covering up his crimes against roughly 100 young boys and girls. In the course of his 14-year career, Porter had been removed from his duties at least eight times by superiors because he had assaulted children and sent to receive mental health treatment for pedophilia, only to be allowed to resume his work after they were satisfied that he had been cured of his predatory predilections. All right. So how did the church, how did they cover it up? Did you hear about it? Did they... Well, someone at Wikipedia heard about it yeah. because they wrote about it, and it wasn't it wasn't Father Porter who wrote the uh, expose on himself. It was someone else at this point. But what I'm saying is that's one isolated incident, and I'm not saying that there is just one isolated incident in the Catholic Church, but this is one isolated incident. Father Porter caught himself. Um, he determined, he realized that he was a threat to the the community and in particular, the young children in his parish. I'm sure the Pope didn't respond directly. It was, it went through channels where the archdiocese probably said, you know what, we need to remove you for this one time. And he was removed eight times. One time, shame on me, right? Two times, shame on you. What are they doing then allowing him to go back? Well, it's it's completely shame on the Catholic Church for allowing this one person to whole... go back eight times. Presumably, they did not tell their parish, listen, Father Porter likes young kids. So that is a cover-up. 
Yeah, by just the fact that they withheld that information. You're exposing your community to a known predator. A pedophile. Yeah. Predator, pedophile, same thing. Pedophile's worse. But my point is that we're talking about cover-ups, right? So it goes back to Richard Addison. Right now we have big tobacco in terms of a cover-up. We have the Catholic Church with their cover-up. You have another example also? Richard Addison is my good example of a cover-up. And who do you think that was perpetrated by? If what we said in the previous episodes holds true, he was probably a high-ranking individual in the New Hampshire uh, Police Department. So right. He could mitigate any progress going on any investigation if you wanted to knowing the right people i think that that is big reason why richard adderson's killer was able to hide from the police investigation because i think that he was a high-ranking officer in whatever department he was in in New Hampshire, and he was able to fudge things initially, but someone had to have realized what he was doing at some point, and then... But he had to be above them. The higher-ups would say, no, this is where I want you to go, and you do that, and they directed the investigation where they wanted to go, or they tell the public, this is what you're going to tell them. This is why they didn't tell the public. That was withheld from the public for a year. Yes. They have a wealth of information in that 911 call. They have Richard Adderson describing his killer. He's giving a physical description of his killer. He's giving a physical description of the car. He's giving partial plate number of a New Hampshire license plate, which I'm convinced that he did because there's no way that an entire investigative team would head up to New Hampshire within days of the murder. So. I believe that he gave at least a partial plate, and that partial plate matched a green Jeep Cherokee. I think, as you said, within a week, New York State. I think it was up. it was either four or five days. I, I I think it was five days that the New York State Police were up in in um, they wind up in Manchester. Why? Let's bring this whole conversation back to Richard Adderson and his investigation. New York State Police obviously had the uh, jurisdiction in this crime. This crime happened in Fishkill, New York. The New York State Police investigation headed up to New Hampshire. They followed the lead that Richard Adderson had given them, that his killer had a New Hampshire license plate, and the killer had identified himself as a cop. So within four or five days, they were up in New Hampshire following leads. Good police work, yes. Nevertheless... Within those four or five days, the New Hampshire State Police or the Manchester Police Department could have stonewalled them at that point, right? You're not interviewing. You're not, yeah. you're not interviewing anyone. You have to go through the proper procedures. Listen, the police are a form of government and there is a 
fucking shitload of red tape to cut through sometimes. So the New Hampshire police, whether local or state, could have stonewalled him or stonewalled them um, initially. And the New York State Police might have known that. All right, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, they might be protecting their own. I uh, I know what that feels like. We're protecting our own, you know. Um, but eventually we have to find out who murdered Richard Adderson. But at some point they had to realize that the New Hampshire police, whether that, again, whether that was the state police or it was the local police, that they were stonewalling them. What do you think? And you're an outsider, but what do you think at that point the New York state police could have done in dealing with that obstacle? Back in 97, 98. Back in, yeah, back in 97, back in 1998. They would, never, they would never go against the blue wall. They would stay behind it knowing that something happened but not going against what would violate the Blue Wall of Silence. Remember, one of the articles I, I, I found or related articles for cover-up was Blue Wall of Silence. No, no, no. And I listen, I, I agree that there, there are some people who were so devout about that thin blue line that they would never cross it. But let's give the New York State Police the benefit of the doubt and say, yes, they were intent on solving this crime. Say that investigator, say Matthew Renneman was like, you know what? I have an unblemished record and I'm going to do whatever I can to solve this homicide. I'm going to find out who it is. And he goes up to New Hampshire and he meets with the New Hampshire state police and the New Hampshire state police give him the runaround. And he's saying, you know what? I'm not going to get anything from them. It's What can he do? He can't. He can at some point. Because In 97. It's, yep. Because it's interstate. Who can he contact? FBI. He can contact the FBI and say, listen, I'm getting the runaround from the New Hampshire State Police. I'm having a very difficult time conducting this investigation across state lines. I need your fucking help. Especially because the victim identified the shooter as a cop. So maybe we should take it out of our hands and maybe we should take it out of the hands of the New Hampshire State Police and give it to the federal agents who don't have as much loyalty to secular or regional regional or, police or and give it to the FBI. But they didn't do that. But so doesn't that have to get this the sign off or the agreement? From the higher-ups? I don't... You know what? You're asking the wrong person. Oh, I don't know okay. how you would go about that. But I would know that if I was getting any... If I was getting any blowback from, from another department and they were giving me the runaround, then I would say, you know what? Fuck it. I, I, I'll hand this off to the FBI. Or at least I will ask the FBI to assist me in the, in the investigation where I, I don't have to deal with the local law enforcement up there anymore and the FBI can do it. But at that point now, the FBI has to want to do it, and they have to see eye to eye with you, too. So there's also some bureaucracy there, too, because they also want to say, do we want to bother with this? This seems more parochial. We don't care. You okay. guys deal with it. And you know what the New York State Police can say at that point? We attempted to get the FBI involved. Oh, okay. And the FBI rejected this case 
and told us to handle it ourselves. At least you can say that, but they never did that. So that's why I believe that the New York State Police were complicit in derailing this investigation. Why not go federal? Yeah, why not go federal? What's the worst thing that they can say? No. And then you know what? Publicly, you can say, we tried. FBI was too busy. Or this case was beneath the FBI. Or the FBI did not want to participate in it. We tried every avenue. Yep. But they didn't. So I was sent this one paragraph, and I think that it is so pertinent to this case. The thin blue line, or blue wall, or whichever structure crooked cops hide behind, is more insidious than the murderer walking around out there. The suspect has a face, a name, and is fallible, but the institution that protects wrongdoers is perhaps even more culpable here. Yeah, it's a cover-up. Cover-up is an attempt, whether successful or not, to conceal evidence of wrongdoing, error, incompetence, or other embarrassing information. I mentioned to you that the old guard is still in place. Yep. Right, so they have... They have a horse in the race or a dog in the race or whatever yeah, expression right. that is, right? All of the new people, all of the new employees of the New York State Police really have nothing to lose with this investigation uh, or a botched investigation well, coming do. to light. I, I, don't, I don't agree. They do. I'm, I'm just saying, I have five years on the job right now. I have nothing, absolutely nothing to do with the botched investigation. Those were my predecessors who fucked things up, or those were my predecessors who covered things up. That has nothing to do with me. I didn't do it. But the thing is, as a community, now I know that your organization has the ability to hide things. Right. And that doesn't help me as a police officer. Right. I am that idealistic cop who comes out and I have five years on the job. And, you know, by year seven, I'm made an investigator in the New York State Police. And I've been given this, this cold case that happened in 1997. And I look through it and I say, you know, there are a couple of things that concern me with this case. I'm going to dig deeper. First of all, there is no one from the old regime who is going to stop me from digging into this case because no one's neck is on the line anymore, right? So whether that was the senior investigator who is charged with overseeing all aspects of the yeah, case. There's no blowback at this point. Or any investigator. There's no blowback. Right. Or any investigator. something were to come out. Right, right, right. They're all gone. They're, They're all... gone. Yeah. And I look into it and I say, wow, this is pretty... It's pretty obvious that they took the wrong turn. I still think it bolds negative. Yeah, but what about me? What about me, the no. new detective? And I say, listen, I'm- It's not I'm, about you. Remember, you're a cop. It's not about me, but I am not covering it up anymore. And I'm saying that this looks very obvious that- You're going to be hated. So, but who am I going to be hated by? Your own, because you've added one of your own. And you've made the department as a whole look bad. I I, I I understand what you're saying, and I agree with it, but you have to think about, is that worth hurting the integrity 
of the organization that you work for. Yeah, but how about this? What what if I love my department so much? But you but you, what if I love yeah, it so much? Yeah, but you heard it in the fact that you're doing this. But I'm doing it because I want to right wrongs. And in the end, the public the say the public says, "Look at this guy. He actually did right by us. He did right by the family." If the if the department doesn't doesn't agree and stand by him, it creates a discord in the whole department. That's the that's the that's the problem. The department, I agree with you. Yeah, but yeah, but the department has to say yes, we did wrong and acknowledge it. If they don't acknowledge it, it discredits the whole organization. So then, what happens to the police department after that? Yeah, but that's I'm, that's the problem that I, I see. I agree with you that to bring this to light. But if the if the organization doesn't want to admit that they did something wrong or they hit something, no, I I understand. But I'm I'm saying at at, at one point, am you, I saying the wrong thing? No, at one point you got to do the right thing. It's been done before. It's been done politically before. It should be done because it's the right thing to do, independent of any politics. You just need a couple of honest, I don't give a fuck people. And you need the old regime to all be phased out. Like I said. You need the right mix. The old guard is still on duty. Mr. Slim Turkey, thank you once again for coming out to the studio. Can you believe this is actually episode five? Episode five. I goddamn right can. Episode five. I, you know, when we started this, I didn't know how long it was going to go. It was going to be very difficult to get past episode three, and we're already at at episode five right now, and um, we're, we're going strong. We're picking up listeners. I love that we're picking up listeners. And please uh, tell your friends. Tell your friends. Listen to the Instagram. Put your comments on Twitter. Listen to the Instagram. (laughs) Listen to the Instagram. This is coming from someone who has no social media common sense. Yeah, that's true. So either do I. Either do I. So I'll see you in a couple of weeks, Turkey. Later. Good night. Turkey time, paradigm, turkey time, standing like the weather is cold. Every detail matters. Details are leads. Leads become evidence in building a case. Small details can be critical clues. A tire mark, the color of a license plate, the caliber of a bullet. There are also what we'll call missing details, such as the locked away transcript of that nine minute phone call between the police dispatcher and Richard Adderson as he fought for his life on the side of Interstate 84. And then there are big details. Big details can fundamentally change a case. Big details like, what if I told you Richard Adderson's killer? was a cop. Every detail is a lead, and every lead brings us one step closer to finding Richard Adderson's killer. I want to thank you for listening to the show. Happy holidays, everyone, and please 
Have a safe and happy new year. We'll see you all back in 2019 for episode six, Sissy Sneaking Suspicion. And if you like the show, fatten up this turkey with some positive reviews on iTunes and find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Remember, we'll be posting those three different composite drawings of Richard Adderson's killer. We're going to be updating the Slim Turkey site, but if you have any questions, comments, or any information about this case, email us at clues at slimturkey.com. As I always say, we'd love to hear from you. For now, I'm Lee Purchase, and this is Slim Turkey.